Welcome to Indie Matters, the podcast from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On this week's episode of the podcast, reporter Megan Messerly breaks down how the race for the White House is shaping up in Nevada, with just about six weeks left before the general election. After that, reporter Michelle Rendell's and associate editor Luce Gray sit down with UNLV law professor and director of the Immigration Law Clinic, Michael Kagan, to talk about the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision to end a temporary protected status, also called TPS, for immigrants from six countries. At the end of the show, Michelle and I offer a preview of what to expect from our big virtual conference IndieFest coming up in early October. But before we get to the rest of our show, I sat down with our healthcare reporter Megan Messerly to break down the newest numbers and latest developments of the coronavirus pandemic. Megan, thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. All right, Megan, as always, before we get into anything else, I want to start with the numbers. So noting now that we're recording on Friday, September 18th, uh, it's the morning, it's 9.42 a.m. What do the numbers look like right now? Right. So we're sitting at just a little bit under 75,000 COVID-19 cases across the state total since the beginning of, of the pandemic in March. We're at about 1,500 deaths today, just a little bit over that. Uh it's interesting. We've been watching the numbers these last couple of weeks, and we've been talking about on this podcast the decreasing trends that we've seen with cases and deaths and hospitalizations going down. Uh, a lot of that public health experts have attributed to you know, the mask order that was put in place back in June, You know, folks just complying with social distancing and mask guidelines and that reducing the spread of COVID-19. However, in the last couple of days, we have started to see a little bit of a plateau or even possibly an uptick in the data. We're really going to need a little bit more data to show us, you know, where this trend is going. But this is the first deviation that we've seen really from those week over week declines. And some of this isn't unexpected. Public health officials have been waiting to see a potential spike from Labor Day weekend gatherings. So this could be the beginnings of that that we're seeing. Uh, But we really do need a little bit more information to really know where this is going. Is this just a little blip and we're going to start going back down again in our numbers? Is this the beginning of another increase? Are we going to be on a plateau? It's just too soon to really know where this data is headed. Interesting. Well, with that in mind, we've got news this week that finally bars in Clark and Elko counties are going to open up. Um, Can you explain that a little bit? Right. So this is uh, something those two counties had been long petitioning the state's COVID-19 mitigation management task force for. Uh, This task force is the body that's tasked with overseeing counties that are at risk of elevated spread of COVID-19. Clark and Elko counties are are the two counties that have consistently remained on that list. Washoe County actually had been long on that list, made it off the list this week. Uh, Clark and Elko counties, though, still are considered at elevated risk still. Members of the task force said at their meeting on Thursday that the metrics really have been improving, and so they felt comfortable enough allowing bars in Clark and Elko counties to open up. Uh, Bars have been closed since July. They actually closed in seven counties back in July as we started to see cases tick up over the summer, and the state has since then been gradually allowing bars in some of those counties to reopen, most recently in Washoe County. Uh, So as of uh, 11.59 p.m. on Sunday night, bars in Clark and Elko counties will be able to open since those were the last two counties where bars had remained closed. That means all bars will be open statewide starting you know, bright and early Monday morning at, at midnight. Well, we'll have to keep an eye on that. As always, if you want to know more about the coronavirus in Nevada, you can head to our website, thenevadaindependent.com, where we have a detailed data page and weekly coronavirus contextualized stories from Megan. Megan, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. 
There are now just 46 days until November's general election, and after months of virtual campaigning amid coronavirus lockdowns, the race for the White House looked a little more normal last week with a few high-profile, in-person stops in the Silver State. Our very own 2020 reporter Megan Messerly has the story. It all started on a Tuesday. Ahead of a planned trip by President Donald Trump to Reno and Las Vegas, the Reno-Tahoe Airport Authority wrote a letter announcing that a planned campaign rally inside an airport hangar couldn't move forward because it violated a state limit capping public gatherings to just 50 people amid the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. The campaign, its surrogates, even the president himself all cried foul, calling it a conspiracy by Nevada Democrats and, particularly, Governor Steve Sisolak to hurt the president's re-election campaign. Republicans here in Nevada and nationally framed it not as enforcement of coronavirus health and safety measures in line with the White House's own recommendations, but a political ploy designed to stifle free speech and the right to assemble. That includes Adam Laxalt, former Nevada attorney general, turned gubernatorial candidate, turned Nevada Trump campaign co-chair. On Twitter and in interviews with conservative media, Laxalt accused the governor of having canceled Trump's rally and called Sisolak's Nevada the, quote, home of political retribution. However, it was the Reno-Tahoe Airport Authority that said the event could not proceed, and the governor's office said it had no communication with rally hosts or organizers. After a couple days of back and forth, the event was moved outdoors to an airfield in Minden, about 45 minutes south of Reno in Douglas County. There, Trump supporters arrived by the thousands, many of them maskless, hoisting campaign signs that read, four more years and peaceful protester. Some of the president's supporters who spoke to the Nevada Independent downplayed the virus, praised Trump on the economy, and complained that Democrats and the media were unfair to the president. There isn't anything they don't want to blame on one person, and we all know who that is. And it's like, there's just no gratitude, there's no acknowledging when somebody does something right. In an hour-and-a-half-long speech, Trump leaned into his often-repeated criticisms of mail-in voting, saying, falsely and without evidence, that mail-in ballots can be accepted without signatures, that Republicans likely wouldn't be sent mail-in ballots, but dogs and dead people would, and that Governor Steve Sisolak controls millions of votes. And he's calling this governor, who is a political hack. He was a political hack, and then he became governor. And this is the guy that we're entrusting with millions of ballots, unsolicited ballots, millions and millions, and then we're supposed to win these states. And we have a guy that would do that where he won't let us have it. We call it a protest, and therefore we can do it. But you want to know something? It's a disgrace. However, the state's elections are actually overseen by a Republican, Secretary of State Barbara Sagafsky, as well as a number of local election officials, not Sisolak. And those millions of votes that Trump says Sisolak controls? Nevada only has a total of 1.7 million active registered voters, with about 1.1 million people voting in the last presidential election here in 2016. Trump also leaned on his message of law and order, following nationwide protests this summer over police brutality and, most recently, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, where a man was shot in the back seven times by a police officer. You're shut down. Except, except if you have a riot. You're not shut down for riots. Riots you can have. They can burn the hell out of this strip. They can burn the hell out of Reno. They can do whatever the hell they want if it's a riot. But if you want to go to church, you can't do it. If you want to be in a group of people, you can't do it. While rioters did set fire to City Hall in Reno, no portion of the Las Vegas Strip was ever set on fire. 
Three men were charged with setting a police vehicle on fire during a protest in downtown Las Vegas. In response, Sisolak told rioters to, quote, get the hell out of town. When Trump landed in Las Vegas the next day, the tension ratcheted up with another rally, this one indoors at a manufacturing warehouse in Henderson owned by Trump donor and rental magnate Don Ahern. Ahern had already sparred with state officials over coronavirus restrictions once before, hosting an Evangelicals for Trump event at his hotel in June. He was fined $11,000 for hosting that event. Now, with roughly 5,600 people packed inside his plant and another 20,000 outside, Ahern and the Trump campaign once again drew the ire of state and local health officials and politicians. Sisolak, in one of several cable TV appearances this week, said that the president had shown, quote, callous disregard for the health and safety of Nevadans. He also maintained that he had no input on trying to scuttle Trump's rallies. And by Monday, the city of Henderson did issue a fine against Ahern's company of just $3,000 for six violations of health and safety directives. But it wasn't just the Trump campaign that signaled how serious it is about Nevada this week. Democratic vice presidential nominee and California Senator Kamala Harris was in Nevada on Tuesday as part of a swing out West. In Las Vegas, Harris accused Trump of downplaying the severity of the COVID-19 virus, even though he admitted to journalist Bob Woodward earlier this year that he saw it as, quote, deadly stuff. Then, echoing other Democrats like Sisolak, Harris slammed Trump for bringing together so many people in a maskless, non-socially distanced environment. This all comes as electoral outcomes in Nevada are less clear than ever. Some political prognosticators proclaim the state as firmly blue, following significant wins for Democrats in 2016 and 2018. But more recent polling, though scarce, shows that Nevada might still keep its swing state reputation in 2020. A New York Times-Siena College poll found Biden up just four points within the poll's 5.3 percentage point margin of error. Biden's performance in Nevada may hinge on a key demographic group the campaign has been spending extra time courting this week, Latinos. A poll last week from Equis Research found that Biden slightly underperformed among Latino voters compared to a generic Democrat, even as he led Trump among the group 62% to 26%. Though Election Day isn't until November 3rd, time is running out for presidential candidates to make their pitches to Nevada voters. Mail ballots are being sent to Washoe County voters on October 2nd and Clark County voters on October 7th. And those hoping to cast in-person ballots will be able to do so as early as October 17th, when early voting begins. For the Nevada Independent, I'm Megan Messerly. We had some extra help covering these visits from our interns, Tabitha Mueller, Kristen Leonard, and Savannah Strott, with a writing assist this week from me. For more of the 2020 election, you can find our expansive elections coverage online, including race breakdowns, advertising trackers, and more, all on the NevadaIndependent.com. For decades, the U.S. government has granted legal status to people from certain countries that are considered so hard hit by war or natural disaster that it would be impractical for people to return there if they are already in the U.S. It's called Temporary Protected Status, or TPS. It covers hundreds of thousands of people from countries including El Salvador, Sudan, and Haiti. While it's always been temporary, the Trump administration has taken particular aim at the program in the last few years, arguing that those countries are now stable enough that immigrants can and should pack up and move back home. The problem is many TPS recipients have been in the U.S. for so long that they've had American children here, secured good-paying jobs because they're allowed to work legally, and otherwise set up deep roots in the U.S. 
Many would love to apply to live here permanently rather than take their children to a country that they have never known. But that's simply not an option available to them because of how TPS and the immigration system overall is set up. On Monday, a three-judge appeals court ruled in favor of the Trump administration, saying the president reserved the right to end TPS. If the ruling stands, it could mean TPS recipients would go from legally present and working to undocumented and subject to deportation sometime next year. Here to break down the implications of the decision is Professor Michael Kagan talking with reporter Michelle Rundells and associate editor Luce Gray. He's professor and head of the UNLV Immigration Clinic, which represents people in court and tries to prevent them from being deported. Let's listen in. Okay, so I'm just kind of wondering if you can break down what does this decision mean in terms of how final is it really? That's a hard, that's a hard answer. I'm just, it's probably not the last word from the court. It's a very big deal. and it's, it's very, very bad news for thousands and thousands of people, thousands here in, in Las Vegas and, and in Nevada and hundreds of thousands nationally. It's a little hard. There's some actual really basic questions that you might ask me that I actually will hesitate to answer. For example, if this stands, when will people's permits expire? That's a really obvious question. And actually, my colleagues and I are still trying to figure that out right now. Sometime early next year is the best answer I'll I'll pin myself down to right now. But every time I think I've got the right date. I hear about some other detail. So, uh, but here's what it, what it means if this stands. People who've been in the country for decades in many cases will suddenly become deportable and will lose employment authorization. Losing employment authorization is probably the thing people will feel first. There's a very, here in Nevada, there's a very large number of people who work on the Strip and many other big employers with very good jobs who have temporary protected status, and once they lose their employment authorization, are likely to lose their jobs. So we could have a mass forced layoff situation with incredible hardship. People will lose homes. There will be foreclosures. Everything that flows from people losing their incomes. So there's mass devastation from that. And then from the, the loss of income, and then the people being deportable at a minimum generates incredible anxiety. People who are, have today been relatively secure will suddenly be looking over their shoulders. And we're talking here about people who, again, have been living here for decades, have families here, have kids here, and they will have to wonder about the knock on the door. Every traffic stop will become a, uh, a risk of being sucked into the deportation pipeline. It is really important to say that just because you lose your permit does not mean you're immediately deported. So it's not as if thousands of people will be deported on a particular date next year, but people will be suddenly vulnerable to being deported if this decision stands. There will likely be appeals. There's the, the plaintiffs in this case can seek on banc review from the Court of Appeals. There can be an appeal to the Supreme Court. But this is a, this is a huge a devastating blow by any measure to thousands of people. And then, of course, we're in the middle of a, a very close presidential race. It feels close now. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this was a decision that came down from DHS, and there's a lot of administrative discretion in TPS. So, I mean, what, what are you watching as we head into November in terms of the implications for TPS recipients? Well, you've probably heard me say before, and I'm hardly alone in saying this, uh, when we've talked about DACA, that DACA is on the ballot. TPS is on the ballot. So thousands of people who work with the rest of us 
and who work in regular jobs in every sector of our economy, they're on the ballot in November. So because this decision is not going to be implemented overnight, it's likely to be implemented in the next presidential term. And I think a lesson on immigrant rights and on protecting immigrants that all of us need to recognize is that the courts will not, in the end, be much of a bulwark against a president determined to close the country to immigrants and to expel immigrants who are here. The litigation that we've seen, including the litigation about the TPS, has slowed things down and bought people time, and that's been immensely valuable to thousands of people. But in the end, it's political. So the fate of thousands of people in this case, is, it's on the ballot in November. We want to talk about the main people who are going to be affected, the beneficiaries. And when they hear this news, they're going to have a thousand questions. So what, and of course, we want them to hear from legal experts, in this case, you. What can they expect with this news? So I know, uh, I don't want to get out ahead of things, but I know that a lot of groups are planning right now to have virtual town halls or other means of trying to disseminate reliable information to people. And it is a scary day for people. And as a, I don't like to try to sugarcoat things. It's a scary day for, for a reason. At the same time, I, do, I would want to tell people don't panic. This is going to take a little while to figure out the details of how it's going to be implemented. The actual result is going to depend in part on the election and also on the result of some further appeals. There are a lot of people who are fighting to protect people with TPS. First and foremost, a lot of people with TPS who are out front on this. So I would tell people it's, it, it is the only advice a lawyer like me can give is that this is something very serious that one has to worry about, but it is not the end. And please don't panic, but please tell everyone who is in a position to do anything about it that there are really serious issues here. This is not, this is not just a tweet, right? This is, this is a real deal and it threatens thousands and thousands of families and people who live and, and work with the rest of us. So we just learned the news today and you are saying it's you know, too soon still to figure out things, but do the beneficiaries need to do something now when they hear the news? Like, oh, I wonder what can I do or what do I have to do? Or The best thing uh, to do would, would first of all be get a, get a legal screening of whether there is a status other than TPS that you may be eligible to apply for. That is something... Uh, that can be viable for a lot of people with TPS. And that would be a really good idea for people to, to look into doing. So get yourself good advice about your individual situation. If you got advice five, 10 years ago, get it again, because things change in your own life and, and sometimes in the details of, of immigration law. It's incredibly complicated. And stay in touch with the org organizations that are really active on this issue. So uh, the Culinary Union has been really central in um, pushing to defend TPS. Arriba, Las Vegas Worker Center, Mi Familia Volta, Make the Road. Those are groups, and they're not the only ones, but they're groups that are really big that, uh, here in, in Las Vegas. Stay in touch with them to get good information and help for your, the situation of your family. Again, don't panic. It's, it's big news today. It's important and it's bad, but it is not over. And of course, there's always the question from people 
why don't TPS recipients just apply to citizenship? What can you say to people that think it's just easy like that? Right. Uh, I wish we had, I, I often wish we had an immigration law as generous as critics of immigration law uh, suppose we have. No, TPS uh, is like one click better than DACA. It's extra, but it's incredibly provisional and always tenuous. And it, most of the people who benefit from it cannot get any other status. And the nature of our immigration law is that we have our doors closed and we never open them. So many of the people who we would like to apply for legal permanent residency, a, a green card, and eventual citizenship, it's not because they don't want to or can't on their, because they don't fill out the forms. It's because we don't open a door to them. And this is a problem in immigration just across the board that we lecture people, why don't you get in line? And then we don't give them a line to get in. And uh, TPS is an, is an example of that. And then, of course, to the legal arguments that came up in this case, one of them was that there's no way to prove that Trump personal racial animus played a role in the decision by the administration to terminate TPS. What do you make of that conclusion? Right. I think I've got it on my screen here. Let me, uh, I'll step into my role as law professor on this and just say that I think the way the courts have dealt with President Trump's racism is so sobering and worrying for the people affected by this case, but on so many other issues. Because here you have the, a federal court basically acknowledging evidence that the president is racist. It says, while the district court's findings that President Trump expressed racial animus against non-white, non-European immigrants are supported by record evidence. That's a lot, far more words than, than you'd want, but it, it, it says there's evidence that the president is racist. And then it says it doesn't matter because the people who work for the president, they didn't express the same abject racism. So the, the gist of this decision is that we can have a openly racist demagogic president campaigning ag against immigrants and saying, I want to take away protection from immigrants for the most hateful reasons. But as long as he has people who work for him who are just more polite in the way they talk, then the policies that he wants will be implemented. That is the gist of this. And I think that for those of us who went into law because we felt that law, the constitution might be a protection against the darkest impulses that our country has had through history, this case and many others that have come out in the last couple of years as a terrible cold shower, the terrible reminder that at the most pivotal moments in our history, courts often do not save us. And that has been the case for immigrants under President Trump. The litigation has slowed some things down. And like I said, that has bought precious years for thousands of people. But in the end, it will be up to the voters and to another process to decide whether racial animus backed by evidence can rule because the court is allowing it to rule. And Congress could do something about it and, and potentially a different administration with a different viewpoint on this could do something about it? Well, Congress could change the law, sure. But Congress is divided between two parties right now. And even if it weren't that, if the president would presumably veto something. So the, it is up to the voters to install a government that actually has a direction. And right now, the government is uh, deadlocked. But on immigration, the president has immense power 
over a, a machine that has the capacity to be incredibly cruel. And they have basically turned the dials everywhere they can to be as cruel as possible. And they've taken the, the brakes away. Well, thank you so much for chatting with us and really breaking it down. So it does sound like a quite a decision. It's going to affect a lot of people. And That was thoroughly depressing. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, my pleasure. All right, and so we are at the last segment of the podcast. This is Joey Lovato up here in Reno, and I am joined by Michelle Rendells down in Carson City. Hi, Michelle. How's it going? Hi, Joey. Having a good day here. Good, good. It looks like the smoke is hopefully clearing out. We'll see. But you just finished talking with uh, Professor Michael Kagan about TPS, but now you and I are going to talk about something totally different, which is uh, IndieFest, which is coming up on October 3rd. Can you kind of explain you know, just what IndieFest is? Well, IndieFest is modeled after a conference that our editors have gone to in Texas called TripFest. And it's just a bunch of, you know, influential newsmakers that gather together for a multi-day thing to, to do a variety of panels and just have, you know, fun discussion about the future of the state and such. So we wanted to do that for Nevada, but of course, COVID got in the way a bit. So we're going to have to do this as a virtual event but what it is, is a one day, all day uh, virtual event with a series of panels. You can dip in and out as you would like. Of course, we've got a great lineup, and I think pretty much everybody's been announced at this point. You know, of course, we've got Governor Sisolak doing an extended interview with John Ralston, which should be just good in and of itself here and, you know, how he feels about how things are going with the COVID response and, and so much more. We've also got every single one, with the exception of one, um, of the living governors that have been presiding over Nevada in the, the past few decades. You know, notably, Governor Sandoval has just been named president of UNR. I'm excited to hear what he has to say about that next step in his career. You know, we've also got an interview with Harry Reid. We've got a panel of legislators talking about what's going to be coming up in the 2021 session. I'm sure that's on a lot of people's minds. And then we've got, you know, a discussion about the future of the economy, which I'm pretty excited about. You know, where do people think we're going in terms of diversifying the economy? And what do we do to get out of the situation we're in with the, the joblessness? Kind of what, what does the future of casinos look like? So we've got Giaconda Arguello Klein from the Culinary Union and Tiffany Tyler Garner. She's formerly of Dieter, now of the Children's Advocacy Alliance, and Federico Zaragoza who is a CSN president, and also Steve Hill, who's LVCDA president and was in charge of Governor Sandoval's move to diversify Nevada after the Great Recession. So those are just a couple of the panels that you can expect. Um, I can also say, you know, our big, our big panel, our big at the, 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 the main event, right, is we're going to have Carl Rove and David Axelrod, who were the political strategists for uh, Obama for President Obama and President um, George W. Bush. So those are going to be, that's going to be a really cool uh, discussion too. Yeah, I hadn't even scrolled down to that part of the program. <laughs> I, know. I mean, those two guys analyzing what's ahead for the election. Um, we've also got a media panel, uh, New York Times, CBS Time, and the editor of the Texas Tribune. They're going to be talking about, you know, I, I'm hoping we'll, we'll get some great perspective about where Nevada sits nationwide as we head into the campaign season. And of course, this is, you know, one month before the election. So I think it's going to be, you know, a pretty good and timely discussion. We'll also hear from, uh, from a representative, uh, Mark Amaday, our representative here in Reno and the Northern Nevada area. 
Yeah. And I just want to kind of tell people how to get in on this. The tickets are $129 for general admission, but if you're an indie member, which I know probably a lot of our listeners are, you Mm -hmm. get a $50 discount. So you're only going to be paying $79. And of course, you know, indie membership is a great thing. You can be an indie member for just a dollar a month. Like it's an amazing deal there. You know, every dollar, this is really helping us weather through the pandemic that's hit everybody. It's hit our budget. And Mm -hmm. so you can feel good that not only are you getting access to some really great, probably newsmaking panels, I would say, but also you're helping support the indie and keep journalism flowing here in the state of Nevada. Yeah. And if you're a, uh, if you're a student or a teacher or an educator, you also get uh, quite a big discount. You can get a ticket for $30. So you just got to use your student or, uh, you know, school email. So, yeah. Yeah. So check out our website. There's a new button on the top left-hand corner that just takes you to all the IndieFest information that you'll need. And we really hope to see you there. It's going to be a lot of the uh, reporters are helping moderate the panel along with John Ralston and our managing editor, E. Thompson. So we're all, all hands are on deck for this event. We're really excited. And Joey, you've been quite busy creating graphics for this. Uh, That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So yeah, so we've been uh, working hard on this and really hope that you'll get a lot out of it. Yeah. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for kind of giving us a little preview of what to expect from IndieFest. And remember, that's October 3rd. I mean, you can get tickets all the way up until day of. And then the, it will be available afterward, too, if you want to purchase tickets to watch those those panels. Um, if, you, if you can't do it on the 3rd watching them live, you can purchase tickets to watch afterward. And that's all available on our website and more information there as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters. We'd like to thank Michael Kagan, Michelle Rundells, Luce Gray, and Megan Messerly for being on the show this week. We'd also like to give a special shout out to our intrepid interns, Tabitha Mueller, Kristen Leonard, and Savannah Strott for their fantastic coverage of the rallies in Minden and Henderson. If you like listening to the podcast, consider leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you'd like to listen. If you have comments, questions, or just want to tell us what a good job we're doing, you can email us at joey at the nvindy.com or jacob at the nvindy.com. And if you want to sponsor the podcast or an indie event, you can email editors at the nvindy.com. Our theme song was written and performed by Reno band People With Bodies, and you can find more of their music on Spotify and Bandcamp. Additional music on this week's episode comes from Lance Conrad and Storyblocks. Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Soler. And we'll talk to you next week.